Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein and Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. You are listening to 3 R. I'm Dr. Shane. We have an hour of science for you now. In the studio with me is Dr. Crystal. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Good to see you. Ready for a science-filled Sunday? We, <laughs> Yes. Well, at least this hour anyway. Dr. Ray, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. We've uh, got a number of guests coming in a little bit later, folks. We've got three uh, different guests coming into the studio, but we're going to start off with some news. Dr. Crystal, worms? Worms? Sorry, was I I shifting in my seat funnily? No, I I was reading some fantastic research uh, this week um, around trying to answer the question, where do earthworms live? Now, the obvious answer to that is... In the earth. earth. In the earth, in the ground. <laughs> well, However... When, when I was a kid, I used to dig them up out of the dirt. But, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, but where in the world uh, do they live at a global level? Do we have right. a real understanding about the distribution of earthworms across the world? And why is this important? Because earthworms are really our ecosystem engineers. They are really the fundamental soil warriors that, you know, eat the soil, they aerate the soil, they, you know, put um, more nutrients into the soil, water, you know, they're involved in carbon sequestration. Hmm. Worms do a lot for us in terms of the services they provide by keeping our soils healthy. However, scientists really didn't have a good picture globally about, you know, what what the global picture of earthworms looks like. And so this is a fantastic example of an open science project that really relied on collaboration. So it involved 141 scientists who pooled their data from across almost 7,000 field sites from 57 countries. We find earthworms clearly in every continent where there is earth and soil. So there are no earthworms that we know of in Antarctica. But apart from that, um, they're all across the world. And um, uh, what they found was really, really fascinating because when you think about biodiversity, where in the world is there the most kind of biodiversity? Around the tropics. Around the tropics. And that's the when we look at... Coral reef, actually. But a coral reefs. Oh, yeah. do, 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 do. Bits of, <laughs> but in tropical areas, right? Yeah. So coral reefs tend to be yeah. in warmer places where we have low latitudes close to the equator. That's for things like plants and insects hmm. and birds. However, when we look below the soil... It's a completely different story. And in fact, the biodiversity of earthworms is actually greater in more temperate regions of the world, the places where it's cooler. So the highest levels of earthworm biodiversity were in places like northeastern US, in Europe, in New Zealand, um, in terms of the number of species that they found in the soil. And then they wanted to ask, well, what matters to worms? What, what, where, where are we seeing um, some of the um, uh, clusters of worms and, and in terms of what they like? And in, in fact, soil type had very little to do with earthworm biodiversity, but in fact, it was more dependent on things around temperature and rainfall. And so that sort of said to the scientists, well, mm, if distribution of earthworms is quite temperature and moisture dependent, how are the changing climate conditions that are going to affect things like soil moisture and temperature going to affect earthworm distribution and earthworm health, which is actually what makes our soils and our planet quite healthy. Mm. So I think it's a really fascinating piece of research for a few reasons. One, it was a great 
collaborative project that really reached out um, across the world, but it was led by the German Centre for Integrative Biodiversity Research. So thank you to those scientists. Um, but I think it's also raised some really interesting questions about how we think about biodiversity and if we're really thinking about what's happening under our feet as well as um, across yeah. our land. So it's, it's, it's fascinating to me because a few years ago, I remember reading about how geology now is having to incorporate so much of the bio element of the way geology changes and the way the earth, you know, seriously down into the crust area, how much change occurs due to bioactivity. Ah. So there's not just, you know, it's not just rocks smashing against rocks. There's a lot of other stuff going on that, you know, causes the production of gases, changes the chemical. Yeah. And so, you know, and and it goes all the way up. And one of the things that was interesting about that is how much the biodiversity of those elements change the geology of the planet. And it's similar with this sort of stuff, Mm. like, because these things aren't just, it's not like the planet's causing that biodiversity and that's the only way it goes. It goes the other way too. You know, like the biodiversity of these worms changes the way our planet looks and feels. Absolutely. That's all that sort of two-way interaction, which is pretty fascinating, but... Worms, eh? So now we know a lot more about earthworms. Yeah, they're everywhere. Mm. They yeah. are, you know, and they don't always stay in the ground. I mean, I remember going fishing in New England and the really great worms to use, because we're still using worms then, were called night crawlers, because at night they'd oh, come yeah. out and... You weren't sticking electrodes into no, the soil no, no, and no. hoping for the best. They come up. No. <laughs> By the way, I, do fish really like worms? Or just people thought that badly of worms that they decided to use them as bait well, for fish? One of the reasons why I like to fish in the ocean and not in a stream is because I really hate that process of putting a hook into a worm. Yeah, I know it's, it's pretty, a worm, but it just doesn't feel good. And, and, it, and it does squirm. They don't like it. I'm pretty sure they don't like it. So anyway, Dr. Ray, what do you got? Um, well, we're going from worms to rats. Uh, scientists at the University of Richmond in Virginia in the U.S. have trained rats to drive tiny cars to collect food. <laughs> and, 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 and if you think, would that video be cute? You're right, it is. Really? There's uh, a video of rats there's, driving there's cars. There's actually several videos because they, they showed the rats actually enjoyed the process more and were better drivers when they had larger areas instead of little narrow windows. And why whoa, would you whoa, make... Whoa. Sorry, I'm just having a flashback to the film Gremlins. Exactly. Where, remember Mogwai and he's driving that little car through the... Do you remember that? Yeah, Am yeah, I too yeah. old? Do you remember that? Yeah, right? no, no, I remember that some, one. So some listeners will remember that. Remote control car so looks wh- very So why sporty. are we teaching rats Abs- to drive cars? Absolutely. So uh, apparently um, if these findings could be used to understand how learning new skills can relieve stress. And also they already use rats to study neurological conditions and psychiatric conditions that affect mental health. Hmm. Don't ask me about the details of that. I'm sure Crystal knows more, but... by giving them a higher type of skill set. So we already know rats can go through mazes. They can press on bars and and buttons and get rewards. But what they're showing here is rats actually are smarter than you would think. Um, With the exception of the sinking ship thing. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Really? But anyway, they're they're smarter than than you would think. It suggests they have much stronger neuroplasticity than what was initially thought. Um, And also, though, what they also found out about how the rats learn. So... They actually figured out the rats were more relaxed after they learned how to do things, which begs the question, how do you figure out if a rat is stressed? <laughs> you ask it, right? No. Um, you, uh, what you do is they, they measure hormone levels in their droppings, and the, the hormone, their hormone for stress is much higher before they learned how to drive than after. 
And they've seen this before in rats. And there's actually a separate yeah. hormone that they secrete more of when they're relaxed. And they actually saw the rats were literally physiologically more relaxed after they'd learned how to do this. And this is not the first time these researchers have seen this. They showed that after rats learned a complex task of digging up hidden food, they were actually much more relaxed. And and this, this um, hormonal response for achievement in people is called agency. And this uh, idea of learning something. And so they actually really think there was quite a learning process that the rats went through. And driving the car was not a very simple thing. They jumped on a metal plate, and then they had to touch one of three wires that controlled direction. And there's great videos of they pointed them the wrong way. They moved the food around. I mean, they really drove around. And, and after the rats learned things, they were relaxed. There were rats that were not more relaxed after the process. That's the rats that were the passengers but, oh, in the little car. The bad drivers. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> the so the rats that yeah. weren't learning how to drive actually were were not more relaxed. Oh, and who didn't have agency. Yeah, who yeah. didn't have agency. Ah. Uh, so, uh, and, they, and they think actually that they could do things about understanding how to reduce stress, but because hmm. this is a higher motor skill, some of the things they already study in rats, like Parkinson's, they can actually look at correlate motor skills. They even think maybe because of the hormonal levels, they might be able to look at mechanical stimuli and rat training and understand things like depression because they use the rat brain as a lot of different models for trying to understand behavior. As long as this isn't a uh, kind of sponsored experiment by Uber Eats to kind of... Uh... <laughs> Get rats <started. laughs> Uh, I couldn't find anything on who the funding source was. I mean, the gig economy has gone pretty far, but I think that's, you know, I'll draw a line at rats delivering my food. Yeah, although I wouldn't have a problem with rats delivering um, emergency stuff to people in, you know, fallen buildings and so forth, uh, in earthquake zones and so forth. You know, people have been looking at the possibility of using cockroaches for that sort of stuff, right? Taking cameras in and so forth and, and, you know, maybe rats are a better way to go. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Uh, Interesting. Well, okay. Uh, controversial issue time. You ready? Uh, Ray and I have already uh, digested this one a little bit in the morning. I'm sure, Dr. Crystal, you saw it. But this week, uh, an article came out, um, it was in The Age and a lot of other uh, different media outlets about a researcher who was employed by Swinburne University who was found to, um, well, there were 30 studies that journals have now retracted that this researcher had published. Um, to be clear... And this is where, you know, you have to read to the very end of the article to get this information, which I find is a little bit duplicitous. These particular studies that have been retracted were not done while this researcher was working at Swinburne University. They were done by um, him when he was working at the University of Iran. But what has happened since is that over a million dollars of taxpayer research funding has been given to this researcher at the University of Swinburne over the last three years based on his research record and the work he's been doing. So this is an interesting game because um, you you don't hear about this very often, but it's good to see when researchers are policing their own. And I think it also... It's very important to note that science is no different than any other field. Um, There is not some special group of people that do science. You know, some scientists are ethically problematic and you have to call them out. Some people are ethically problematic. Scientists are people. You know, they're just the same as everyone else. And every now and then you'll get some bad apples. So it's an interesting one, though, because this, um, this is quite a large amount of research. You know, 30 journal articles. The big question for me is, why did it take them so long to work this out? You know, that's a lot. But then again, um, you know, if people aren't scrutinizing the work in the right way, and some fields have just such massive numbers of publications in them, it's hard to see them. So, well, one thing that's often not um, noted, I think this article might have pointed it out, the scrutiny, when we talk about the peer review process, 
is done for free. That the yeah. publishers make money off publishing, but the entire workforce is doing that for free because yeah. it's yeah. scientists that review each other's work for free. Yeah, and um, and you know, often you know those people. Um, you usually, you know, if if you really are an expert in your field, you'll often have encountered those people doing the review at conferences and so forth, and and so forth. so you, you will know them. But it's it's an interesting scenario because the drives in science at the moment are more around quantity than quality. Um, in many regards, you know, this push to publish is really, really strong and people will do things that are sometimes inappropriate. Oh, I think it shows great integrity um, from Swinburne University to be transparent about this because mm. we do know of scientists who have had papers retracted where their universities and their institutes have um, not commented and not acted. Mm. Um, and so I think that it really speaks, you know, to their transparency and openness about um, how they're, they're going about uh, ensuring that their research is of the highest standard. So I, I would I would say good on you, Swinburne. Yeah, look, I was when I was reading this this morning, I was a bit pissed off at the way in which the article is, you know, the, the title of the article is, is put together because to read it out it says, Scientists leave Swinburne after journals retract 30 studies over plagiarism claims. Mm. It, it, I find that misleading. That indicates that it was done at Swinburne. You know, it kind of says to me this was all happening under Swinburne's umbrella, and it wasn't. And the um, university pointed out the retractions were being done prior yeah, to this research. Yeah, right. Yeah, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't hurt to sort of um, buried indicate in this. Yeah. If, yeah, exactly. And if anything, I think Swinburne here, well, Swinburne was the not, not the group that um, found this out. It was a whistleblower that put forward to an external party that monitors this sort of behaviour and that was then sent on to the journals. But, you know, Swinburne's obviously acted fairly quickly to to deal with this particular individual. But I don't like seeing articles that imply that the activities happen to Swinburne. Now, uh, you know, as Dr Ray and I were talking about before the show, odds are this person's probably continued to have nefarious activities here as well as in, you know, in the past, you don't know, but that that's something that they'll have to uncover. Yeah, and there's a, quite a big push at the moment in Australia to have an office of academic integrity to actually have mm. a national body that oversees um, scientific integrity. They have them in other countries. Australia does not. Um, so there's quite a number of researchers who are very keen to ensure that there are proper oversights and standards in place yeah. that are being applied uniformly and um, in a non-discriminatory way across the sector. So you yep. don't lead to the fact that some researchers are protected and others are not when clearly there is fraudulent yeah. behaviour happening across the field. Yeah, and, you know, the most famous example of this is a, a single publication causing all the issues with regards to vaccinations and that paper has been retracted, you know, but not not before it did a lot of damage and it's still, it's still doing damage to this day. So this is important that this stuff gets policed. Um, bravo the Swinburne for getting rid of this individual and I think uh, I'd love to know what's happening to the million dollars in taxpayers-funded money, which I suspect um, is an ongoing discussion, but it would be nice for some sort of clarity around what's happening with that because I think if it's been fraudulently used by this individual, then, you know, um, that should be looked into. But, uh, yeah, science isn't perfect, folks. Um, it's good to see those who are doing doing a disjustice being uh, knocked out of the system. Triple R. In the studio with us now is Dr Christine Keenan. She's from the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute. Christine, welcome to Triple R. Thanks very much. Happy to be here. Look, it's great to have you in because you're working in this area that we've, we've talked about um, asthma and treatments for asthma and so forth for, for many years on this show. We've had some amazing guests in over the years talking about what's happening, you know, things like thunderstorm asthma or all the various you know, acute scenarios that have occurred, but also some of the treatments. But what's what's come out this, you know, in the, in the I guess, the media and so forth in the last week is the work you've been doing there at the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute. 
First of all, before we get into that, give us a bit of a, an idea of what's happening when someone has an asthma attack. I mean, what, what's, what's the body doing? Well, the body's sort of overreacting to what's happening in the environment. So there's things like allergens that are floating around all the time. So they come from things like house dust mite or yep. pollen or whatever. And, you know, under normal circumstances, they're pretty innocuous and they don't cause any any damage at all. So in an asthmatic individual, they have a sort of hyperactive immune response. Mm -hmm. And so you've got these certain cells of the immune system that are called uh, T cells or T helper cells. They they orchestrate this inflammatory response. So they respond to that allergen um, and they cause this huge inflammatory response. And that results in the release of a whole heap of different things in the airways that makes muscle constrict. And then when the muscle constricts, obviously, you can't breathe very well because all those pipes that are supposed to be conducting the air down um, through the airways get closed off. So that's obviously a huge problem. We need to be able to breathe. So, so what's the difference between, uh, I suppose, a person who has asthma and doesn't? Because like in, in, in my body, I, I don't get asthma, but you know, I breathe in these pollen things, I might sneeze, I have some responses and my immune system does respond. And it sounds like that's a good thing because whenever I take in those contaminants, I want to get them back out of my body. So what's the, the difference between, is it just an overreaction, an un sort of um, regulated reaction that's occurring in asthmatic? Yeah, that's right. So so in an asthmatic individuals, they react um, too much. Right. And, yeah, it's just a big problem for them. Mm. Right. So ignorant question. Hay fever is, it's not asthma. It's just a, more of the reaction Shane talked about, and people have varied amounts of that. But that's that's much, much different than asthma because hay fever doesn't have a muscle constriction in it. Yeah, that's right. So it occurs um, up in the sort of nasal passages, whereas asthma is occurring in the in the lower airway. So it's a similar sort of a response. Um, and interestingly, in the thunderstorm asthma um, event, it was hay fever sufferers that sort of responded. So in that event, um, you had all these pollen particles that were much smaller than normal. They mm, went down into the uh, airways. Um, and they had an asthmatic type of response. And those people, some of them were asthmatic, but most of them were not asthmatic. They were actually hay fever sufferers. Yeah, I remember when we had the, the guests on talking about that in the past, and it was that whole thing with the pollen breaking up because of the atmospheric conditions and even some things around, um, I think there was some, some bacterial elements that were found in swimming pools and so forth stuck to those particles. That All of that at once, you know, sort of multivectorial mm. sort of approach to attacking the body. And so people, you know, were, were responding in ways they normally wouldn't. Now, at, at Wehi, you've been working on some particular drugs that aren't for asthma, though. So what, what were they? What were they designed for? So... Uh, our work is actually basic sort of stuff to do with how genes turn on and off, mm-hmm. process called yep. um, epigenetics. And so this is the way that different cells of the body know what to do when every cell has got the same DNA code. Okay. Um, so people have been trying to target the epigenome uh, for cancer. And what happens in cancer is is that you have um, uncontrolled cell growth. And what you have in asthma is it's not uncontrolled cell growth, but it's an uncontrolled a response of cells where they mm. um, divide and, and then orchestrate this inflammation. So whilst it's quite a different uh, process, what we found in the lab is that we had this um, epigenetic modifier or this this particular enzyme gets turned on in those cells that cause that inflammatory response in asthma. And we found that people have already made 
um, lots of different drugs that actually target that. And they've gone into clinical trials in cancer, which is really exciting because that's where often drugs uh, fall down in, in development yep. is they yep. work really well in labs um, and then someone tries to put them yep. into a human and they cause horrible toxicities. Right, yeah. So that's a problem. Yeah, so so these drugs have already been tested and shown to be human safe, essentially. Mm. And in terms of the... So I just want to come back to a little point you said there about you know the difference between what's happening in cancer and what's happening in asthma. Uh, one of the things I hadn't really thought of before is that the body, when it responds to asthma, is producing new material. Is that that's right? So that's the part I hadn't thought about. Like in cancer, we're talking about stopping the production of new uncontrolled cell growth, but in asthma, there's also a production of something. So the body's producing more of something, and in asthmatics' case, producing too much, I assume. Yeah, that's right. So you've got this um, initial response of the cells that are responding to that allergen out in the air and they have to divide and they have to proliferate within the body to bring in all those other sort of inflammatory cell types. So that's yep. a, a key part um, of how the immune system or the adaptive immune system anyway responds. Yeah. So, yeah, you've certainly, you need these processes of, of cell division to orchestrate that inflammation. And, and this, so this is the part that I find fascinating. In, in asthmatic, this happens very, very fast, right? Yeah, that's this, right. I mean, we're talking minutes? Yeah. So that production, that overproduction of whatever materials our body's generating is happening, like the cancer cell stuff happens, you know, over a longer period of time, but this is really fast. Yeah, so there's different sorts of phases to the asthmatic response. So you've got the initial phase where you release all those things that cause the airways to constrict, and then over a longer period you have those um, cells dividing and orchestrating a, a bigger response so that, you know, um, people that are having severe asthma attacks, they can go for hours. Mm. So you mentioned that there's an enzyme, a number of these drugs target that uh, affect the adaptive immune system. Does it does it just affect the the adaptive immune system in the lungs, or does it is it it, it govern? It, it, it does it have side effects in that sense? We haven't found any side effects. So these cells um, that are responding to the allergen seem to be particularly sensitive. So they they turn on the enzyme very rapidly and to a very high level. So they seem to be extremely or exquisitely sensitive um, to this drug. So it would be quite good in an asthmatic individual to deliver into the lungs to avoid um, other side effects. But um, we haven't gone into patients yet. Right. Well, we're going with naive questions because I'm, I'm just going to take words and extrapolate because I can do that because I don't know anything. In it. So you use the word inflammation. Does that mean this type of drug or targeting that enzyme can affect other types of inflammation? And is it acute inflammation or chronic? And I don't even know if I use those words properly. There's certainly the hope um, there. So we think these processes would occur in other conditions. We don't yet have data Okay. on that. So I don't want to extrapolate mm. too far. Okay. So, um, Christine, how does this differ from the current treatments for asthma? Because people have preventative inhalants. They have inhalants that they use during an attack. I mean, how do, how do they work relative to this new type of approach where you're essentially stopping some of our, our genes from doing their job? Yeah. So it's it's quite a different sort of approach. So the classic um, preventer medications are yeah, anti-inflammatory steroids, okay. Um, that most people will be familiar with and you'll get for any sort of inflammatory yep. um, condition. So that's your preventive medication and they work um, across your whole immune system. You can end up a bit immunosuppressed yeah. and there's lots of side effects. So you can end up um, shorter stature, uh, osteoporosis type effects, cataracts, glaucoma. The, the list of side effects um, is quite long um, and that's obviously very concerning. Yeah, And you have to take these drugs uh, typically every day for your whole life. And then the other sort, those relievers, um, those um, sort of blue-grey puffers, mm. 
they just stop the the muscle from constricting around the airway so that they they don't do anything to the actual cause and the yeah. yeah, yeah, and and in terms of because in certainly in the latter case there, there's it's very fast acting, you know, it's very fast acting. So in, in the case of this drug, what where would that sit in that range? Would this be something that I take as a preventative every day, or is it something that I would use only when they have an attack? How would that work? We're not sure yet. Um, it seems to work very profoundly in our laboratory models. Um, so whilst it doesn't affect the the muscle constricting, it seems to shut down the immune response really quickly. Right. Um, so maybe it would be able to um, supplant that uh, relaxer drug. Um, alternatively, it does shut down that inflammatory response. So, you know, our biggest hope is that it, it is what we call glucocorticoid sparing or steroid sparing. So people wouldn't have to take those steroids and maybe um, you'd be able to take this once a month and shut down that, that immune response and you'd be okay. But, yeah. yeah, we don't know yet. Yeah. Well, I'd, uh, you know, I'm going to avoid asking you about timeframes because I know these things take quite a while to develop. But it sounds like, uh, you know, unlike many of these drugs we hear about, this doesn't sound like an incremental shift. It sounds like a step change. And as, you know, Dr. Ray asked, if this can be utilised in other areas as well, that would be fascinating. Has, has that work started on looking at other inflammatory conditions? Yes, we have started doing that in the lab. Yeah, fascinating. All right, uh, Christine, thanks so much for coming in and talking to us. Good luck there. Sounds like another really good piece of research coming out of WeHi, and um, we hope to see the results of this, especially uh, I think Melbourne is one of the, the capitals of the world, isn't it, in yes, terms it of uh, asthma, which is a bit sad. I'm not sure why. It must be all that grass they're growing in Adelaide mm. blow, blowing towards us or something. But, um, yeah, good luck with that research, and we want to hear more when um, when you, you know, progress to the next stage. Thank you. Thanks, thanks so much. Dr. Christine Keenan's from the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. In the studio with us now, we have two guests from Monash University's School of Information Technology. They're from the Machine Learning Group. We have the director, Ray Bunting. Good morning. Good morning. And we also have Caitlin Dugan, who is from the same centre. Welcome. Now, uh, we discovered each other on uh, Twitter, Caitlin, because yeah. you uh, saw someone else being interviewed here and you're like, how do you get into that? Yeah, definitely. And that was the answer, just yep. saying, how do you get into that? Yeah, thanks uh, for that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was easy. Um, now, we've got a bit of time for this because we want to explore a bit of uh, machine learning and AI and all this other stuff. So, Caitlin, I might start with you with regards to, we hear these terms, machine learning and AI. What's the difference? Well, uh, it depends on who you're talking to, but machine learning is sort of a general process. You get unsupervised and supervised, um, yep. whether or not, you know, you're looking to have an application that takes either. Um, AI is a really general term at the moment. We are thinking, you know, uh, it's an application of machine learning within a greater field. So deep learning, for example, is a really big area of AI right now. Um, we don't necessarily handle that or I don't necessarily handle that. So Look, the terms are intertwined, mm. um, but it's more about a general, bigger application. And if, if we're explaining machine learning to someone, what, what, how would we do that? Like, what, what do we mean by machine learning? Is this machines learning? You know, I mean, everyone out there is listening and thinking, yeah, I've seen the Terminator. Yeah, what, where are we? Where are we? You know, what, what does machine learning mean in the context yeah. of, of current day computer science? Yeah, that? so for what I do, which is topic modelling, which is a text classification um, uh, algorithm, um, it's about taking the data. Um, yep. feeding it into a model. So the model's going to treat it in a certain way um, and we're going to get an output based on that. So it's not necessarily learning per se, mm. but the parameters are adjusting. 
Okay, so this is sort of a more adaptive way of modelling, perhaps, than what people have done in the past. Is yeah, absolutely. One way to describe it. You're right. Um, I, we had a uh, an AI researcher come in and explain it to us, and I I completely misunderstood what AI was. So I just want to test to make sure if I've learned this properly. So they were talking about how you might look at a power tool in a picture, and I said things like, "Oh, you do," and I said a series of standard or traditional image processing stuff, and and the researcher looked at me and went, "No, no." The, the picture is, a, is really a list of numbers, and the AI just looks for uh, any the part of the list of numbers that has this sequence, and that sequence of numbers means power tool. Like, when you say model, I think the reason you say things like model and, and the words get quite abstract is it's not people, you know, as a, as a novice or naively, you think, oh, well, it's learning about that thing. It's not. It's not doesn't care that it's a power tool. It's, it's a string of numbers, or I guess in your case, a, a classified string of text. It's not the physical thing anymore, or even the word. It's, it's a string of information that the the computer then classifies in a particular way is that yeah absolutely so if we think of a, a sentence um, what we're going to do is effectively assign those words which we will break up and we'll put it into a representation called a vector so the algorithm is just going to see sets of numbers and it has absolutely no context to those numbers so yeah he's he's pretty much mm. right on that so and we can we could represent anything that way i suppose couldn't mm-hmm. we and Definitely. is it so what's the hard part is the hard part the translation into numbers? of Is that the part that's hardest in this space? It depends on who you're speaking to. Um, personally, I would say the hard part is translating into numbers based on what you've put in so we can avoid things like biases, right. um, whether or not we get the big data set that is biased already, or we accidentally bias that data set. Um, and then, of course, when we've got the output, it's interpreting that output correctly. So there's two ways it can go wrong. Mm. Um, my research isn't necessarily building the algorithms. It's what goes in and then what goes out. Right. Now, Ray, and this is a little bit confusing because we have two Rays in in the studio, but uh, Ray from the centre. Uh, what, what's the overall sort of um, push the centre's got down there at Monash? I mean, what, what are you what are you there to do? Uh, we're a, a general machine learning group, so we have uh, people doing quite a lot of things. In terms of applications, we follow uh, Monash's main uh, three areas, which mm. is health. Uh, sustainability and, and governance. Mm. And so we have various people looking at those areas. Uh, in terms of methodology, which is developing algorithms and theories, um, we cover a broad range from deep learning, causality, um, time series, all sorts of mm. things. So, mm. so, for instance, we just put out a land use map for Victoria, the first time it's ever been done. And that, oh, right. that was built with a, 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 deep, a deep learning system. Um, from one of our uh, researchers. And, and what, what sort of information went into that? I can imagine there's a lot of satellite uh, data and so yeah, forth. Yeah, U- European satellite data. Right. Mainly. And, and, and what, and what in terms of, you say, a land use map, how is this down to the square metre? Is it, uh, um, how detailed is that? Um, I'm not the expert, but it's, it's whatever the, the uh, satellite resolution was. I think it's 10 by 10. Right. Oh, so that's, yeah, yeah that's pretty, uh, pretty good. It, yeah. it, the first time it's being done here, they, I think they're doing it elsewhere, but it, it's got huge uh, application mm. potential. Think of what they could do with um, uh, trying to map species yeah. across Australia. And I suppose you overlay that with water use maps and rainfall maps yeah. and all sorts of things. And now you're getting serious uh, 
applications for Australia, yeah. water use especially, which the CSIRO is an expert in. Yeah. Now, Caitlin, in terms of your work, a lot of what you've been doing is around how information goes backwards and forwards between people doing AI work like mm-hmm. yourself and researchers in the fields that use that as an application. I mean, I've never really thought about that as being necessarily problematic beyond the fact that I, I know some people in, in your area that aren't the best communicators and that can, be, that can be problematic, but then I also know some researchers in the other areas who aren't the best communicators, you whack all those great communicators together and you presumably have some problems. But I mean, what, what are you working on specifically there in terms of that interaction? Yeah. So one of the things is we've, uh, in the in the last 10, 15 years, had a massive push for open data um, right. and yep. also open algorithms. So GitHub, for example, will allow us to go and access code from, from other people who built it. When I'm a researcher, say, in medicine or or informatics in medicine, I can go and access those models and use it for my own purposes. But I'm really not aware of all of the things that can go wrong with the data going in and what's coming out of it. So when I go and publish a paper making a claim, that might not actually be accurate or correct. And the follow-on effect from that can be quite dangerous, Mm. potentially. Mm. So I'm looking to see how can we get information back to indicate if it's not right? And how can we give people the heads up on these, the warning flags you need to look for? Yeah. And in terms of the process of doing that, I mean, I can't expect that you would be getting a whole of the researchers to go and do large amounts of education around, no. around that. So, so how, do you, how do you do that? I go and grab researchers who are really interested in using some of these um, new machine learning techniques and go, hey, pretty much this is the way. Hey, do you want to do a machine learning application with me? And they go, yeah, that's really cool. Let's do that. And we sit down and we do a sort of autoethnographic type uh, uh, study where we do the work and we also look at how we've done the work in terms of communicating with each other. Yeah. So I was really fascinated this week when I read an article published in Science, which was actually looking exactly this. It was looking at the racial bias in algorithms for health. And I thought it was really fascinating because it challenged some of those underlying assumptions in the data that went in to give you to to look at how the outputs actually provided significant disadvantage for, in this case, African American people versus white Caucasian Americans in the healthcare system. Is that the kind of issue that you're looking to address? Not necessarily. So those data sets have been biased from the get-go. I'm more interested in when the researchers themselves, so within the context of a university faculty. Um, when they're actually treating their data in a process called wrangling, which is also known as cleaning or munging, um, when they're accidentally influencing what's going into the algorithm. So more Mm. of the, yeah. It must be very hard to pull that out, though, because especially, you know, as we've seen recently, the number of, uh, particularly in the psychological sciences, the number of actual studies that are being retracted or they haven't been able to be repeated. Presumably a lot of that is coming from this sort of investigator bias that goes into the the way they do the statistics and so forth. Is that Yeah, I'm really concerned about that. Often we'll see uh, studies going out in medical informatics, for example, where I'm looking at the claims they're making and I'm going, that's not repeatable. Um, Topic models, for example, aren't particularly stable. So if you put a new, uh, uh, even a new piece of data into your original data set, it's going to drastically change the outcome. Um, So I I am personally quite concerned with these things Mm -hmm. and that's why I want to develop frameworks to make that better. So so you you see that a lot in the medical sciences. I I started off in astrophysics physics. And I don't remember seeing that kind of bias in the data in astrophysics. Do you, do you see it in other fields like that as well? 
Um, so, so far, the work I've done is around medicine, but also I've done stuff around Auspol, um, and I can pick up on it fairly quickly. Mm. So, do you want an example yeah, from Auspol? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, Australians like to use a lot of slang, uh, particularly. Hadn't noticed. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah, nah, for example. Um, so, we use a lot of slang, and um, we use something called word embeddings, which is a, a massive um, text. So, it, it helps our algorithms perform better. One of the problems with that is all of the word embedding data sets are American English. Um, right. And we don't speak American English. We don't. So we it's miss a, a lot. Yeah, I'm going to go down to the servo on Smoko is not going to be <laughs> in that data set. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I see it almost immediately. Yeah. And uh, when you say you see it, I mean, where, where are you? Can you sort of describe the date? Like, what, what, what are you seeing? Like, what are you picking up there? Yeah. Then? So yeah. I'll scrape 100,000 tweets. Um, <laughs> just like <laughs> just, that. Just like yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so I'll, I'll do that and I'll start cleaning them up and removing all of the, you know, the at symbols and the hashtags yep. and yep. things like that. And immediately I'll be reading them on the screen just every now and again. And I'll go, oh, that's not good. That's a French tweet. Or, oh, that's not good. That's referring to SCOMO as slow-mo or SCOMO or Scott right. Morrison or yeah, many yeah. other terms. Yeah. So I, I know that example was was very specific in, in, in the data set. But when, when you said framework before, um, is there a need for, for more integration of AI researchers with application researchers? I mean, I, in talking to AI researchers, sometimes I hear, oh, we need to grow AI. We need a center for AI. And I go, do we need a center for AI or do we need a center for AI doing things? And is that framework about more collaboration? 100%, uh, okay. yeah. Um, I'm definitely mm. seeing a lack of what is true interdisciplinary research. Um, we try our best. Uh, we work with industry and we try to work with other discipli disciplines. Sorry. But whether or not we're sitting in the room together and working on a problem is another story. It's just not happening. So interdisciplinary mm. AI, AI is a, an absolute necessity. I think I feel we're just starting to scratch the surface here. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. We're learning a lot about machine learning. We're learning how much it can't do during the break, which is disturbing. I thought it could solve every problem in the world, but Caitlin has just informed us that maybe not. Um, now, Ray, you're using some of this work in a very interesting area, and that is the early detection, or I, I suppose, screening of the potential for some people to be suicidal. Tell us a bit about that work, because that, that's fascinating and, and something that you know is obviously a very big and growing problem in Australia. So I'm part of a of a much bigger team and uh, there's a group called Turning Point uh, which is a non-profit group based in Richmond who does um, uh, all different aspects of mental health and addiction studies. Mm. Dan Lubman, Professor Dan Lubman is a professor at Monash of addiction studies and he's run the centre for a while. They do all sorts of things but what I'm involved in is we're taking ambulance data and they've spent years working with the ambulance organisations and setting up a, maintain, uh, a monitoring system which is then fed back into government policy. Mm -hmm. So they annotate and code up the, the ambulance records and then they take those numbers and give details to politicians about uh, how things are changing. For instance, they recommended where to put the injection rooms in in Melbourne. Okay. Um, yep. They are the only people who could do that. Um, so, and just on that, so why the choice of ambulance data and not, for example, emergency room data? Interact, yes. So there's also, uh, so the problem is the ambulance data is the best. Okay. So coroner's records, you don't get for a couple of years. The emergency room data, well, it's patchy. It's got various things. It 
Uh, so the ambulance data is gives you the coverage. Um, it's probably the best. It's the one. It's the only one that, where they could get really good, timely information hmm. because they can get it fairly quickly. And what sort of things does that tell you? I can imagine it gives you locations <coughs> and types of callouts. So the the uh, the dry the ambulance professionals who are doing this, they do uh, like a two hundred word write up, um, which lists various things, and they'll give quite a little bit of a description of, of, of the event mm-hmm. and the uh, aspects of what was going on. Mm. Do, do they get information back from the hospitals to sort of update that correctly? So if I, I get a call out for one thing, but by the time I end up in the hospital, it worked, it, it's something else. Um, I'm not, I don't think so. So my knowledge wouldn't, wouldn't extend to that. But they do get, uh, when they get an ambulance record, the... Yep. Our, our folks get to see the previous um, records yeah. for that person when they're doing the, the coding. Uh, give, give us a feel for the... Sorry, Caitlin. Oh, I was yeah. just going to interject. So I used to yeah. work in an emergency ward um, and also a psychiatric um, department. We get these records and they're incredibly detailed, which is wonderful, but it's all handwritten. Yeah, right. Or it's actually photocopied in, which is really problematic for pulling it back out again. So the process is too complex to pull it back out. Yeah, and, and some of that, I remember talking to someone from a, a hospital that shall remain nameless, perhaps in this country, um, where I asked them whether they had digital records. And they said to me, yeah, we've scanned all the handwritten records. Yeah, I'm yeah. like, what? Um, okay, I guess that is kind of a yes to my question, but no, it's not what I would call a digital record. In, in terms of the... The data, though, give us a feel for the sort of size of data we're talking about here because, I mean, the ambulances are going nonstop every day. There's, as you say, a paragraph of text Mm. for each patient. There's literally thousands of patients a week. I I think there's um, something like 20,000 records. I I think it might be a a year for, um, oh, no, it's probably uh, 20,000 a month, say, for a state. Yep. Um, I've probably got the order of magnitude wrong. Um, but what it means is they've got a, a 10 gigabyte database. If right. that, that's sort of a telephone book. Yeah, and um, just text, that's, that's big. Yeah, yeah. That's big. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so that's what we're... Um, that's what we're working with. Yeah. Caitlin, just coming back to your work on, on the tech stuff, I mean, when you've got 10 gigabytes of data in text format like that, how much of it is usable? Um, depends how much I really need to throw out. So usable usable in terms of it can go into whatever we're using to classify it absolutely it's all usable really we'll pull out things what are called stop words so and the two right they're not useful in terms of whether or not we're accidentally throwing out good data that's another story so accidentally not usable yeah interesting and in terms of this project of prediction of you know things like suicides i mean how how does that work how do you use ambulance data to predict that? so our first task is quite basic and that's to get statistics. So they want to see how many people are um, thinking about suicide, mm-hmm. how many people are acting um, to get attention, how many people are acting to actually commit suicide, um, and then they're linking that to all the other aspects, uh, the uh, self-harm, drug use, um, uh, family violence. And so all of, all of those things are in together in a big pot because it's all mental health. At the end. Mm. And and you mentioned before, this is information that goes to government for policy purposes. So this is an information that then used to say, hey, that person's calling an ambulance. Mm. We need to interact in a different way for that individual because they're non-identified, I assume. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, 
Um, everything is is non non identified at the analytic level. Yeah, yeah. And so this is the information that goes into government to say. Oh well, the government only gets uh, aggregated statistics. They it's impossible for any of the users of the data coming out of Turning Point to see anything. Right. About anyone. Yeah, yeah, which is important, which yeah, is important. Yeah, absolutely. And so, so what do you anticipate the changes in government policy would be as a result of this sort um, of work? So qualifying, I'm not the expert to tell you about that because that's really what uh, Dan mm. and yeah. and Debbie Scott and the other f- the, uh, the people at Turning Point do. Um, but I'd hope they'd they'd uh, change the, the services they offer, mm. um, have better integration, of things, so it's, 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 there's a lot of capability uh, yeah. d- put through, change where money goes. Well, I suppose it just gives you database policy setting as opposed to you know anecdotal policy yeah. setting. Yeah. yeah, but the the broader thing is that this is a the project I'm on is is Google funded, so they're they're actually looking at it in a sort of an international mm. perspective. So Google was really interested in in what Dan was and his group were proposing. So yeah. so they're looking at it to see, okay, how can we make this international? And also how can we take our methods and apply them to other aspects of um, not just mental health, but, you, you know, any kind of running of an NGO yeah. uh, anywhere. How can we support yeah. the the coding and annotation yeah. and extraction of data from statistics yeah. from text? Yeah. Um, Caitlin, just before we go, I, I want to sort of finish with uh, just ask you in terms of, you're talking about how you interact with researchers and so forth. I mean, what what would you do if if you had more sort of control over universities, the way they, you know, train people and so forth? Would you do that differently, or is it just at the back end that we no, solve the problem? I'd definitely be doing it differently. Um, when we think about AI research, we've we've got the theoretical level, we've got the empirical level, and then we've got the uh, applied. And I'm I'm doing mm-hmm. quotation marks here. Yep. Um, we've got the applied level. The applied level, it's its too far away from the empirical. We need to bring those researchers together and we okay. really need to incentivize empirical researchers to be doing that because it helps build better models for us. Mm. So, mm. And, and those models presumably, um, like the, the success, as you say, the success of the models depends heavily on them being close to the real world as opposed to, you know, just something sitting in, a, in your, I, I use the word lab, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, in, in your office somewhere um, where there's no connection to the real world at all. Yeah, we use Twitter data sets, which often have nothing to do with the real world. Yeah. So a Twitter data set on Australian politics is definitely not what we're using to build our algorithms. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would hope not. Well, I guess there's some interest in that as well. There was some, there was, wasn't there some guy in, in Queensland who used some machine learning program to predict the last election or something like that? Yeah, and I tried to beat him and I missed out on Queensland. Oh, no. so. <laughs> <laughs> you tried to beat him? I tried. Oh, I sent an email geez. to everyone saying I could do it and by three o'clock I couldn't. Hey, the good thing is you get another try in a couple of years. Yeah, great. Great. So, uh, yeah, yeah, you can beat this guy. Well, look, uh, thank you both so much for coming in today. It's fascinating talking about um, machine learning. I think it's really good for people to get a, a better feel for the fact that this isn't the solving of everything and there are some pretty deep problems with regards to the way it interacts with other fields and how fields interact with it. So it's nice to hear that you're both uh, working in the centre down at Monash and that uh, in, in some way, hopefully, you're, you're making those connections that otherwise aren't happening. So thanks so much for being a guest. No worries. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Folks, uh, we're almost out of time. We're going to have to hand over in a moment to eat it. Uh, Dr. Crystal, good to see you. Always a pleasure, Dr. Shane. Big weekend? Uh, you know, some gardening, I think, you oh. know, going out there, you know, getting
getting my hands dirty, maybe seeing some earthworms. Yeah, you know, it, it hailed yesterday where I was living. It did. It hailed. It did. It was, it was uh, 30 on Thursday. I love Melbourne weather. Uh, it, so it, looks like, it looks like Thursdays are the days. Um, it's going to be 30 again. <laughs> yeah, there we go. <laughs> it's like nice. Thursday's the peak day. Oh, very cool. Dr. Ray, good to see you. Shane. It was fun. Yep. Uh, finishing up the Pac-Man costume for my son for Halloween. It's been fun. <laughs> I forget. Lots that. of yellow paint. And what will you be going as? Uh, Pac-Man's dead or just... Pac-Man's dead, yeah. Pac-Man's just, dead, yeah I have a medal with a little Pac-Man on it. That's, that's <laughs> it. I'm pretty much phoning it in. We built I, his costume. That's. I think, I think we're going to need pictures of this Pac-Man, uh, Pac-Man costume because I expect high things because of your accent. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.